to Peter chapter one, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue in virtue with knowledge, in knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is Blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory and honor from God, the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for your help as we hear the word of God and we pray that it may have not a challenging influence but a changing influence in our lives today. Help us to be good people, loving you, following you, loving you, living for you, Lord. Help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray again, Lord, may it not just be the pain of challenge that we feel, but help us today to change and to go in the right direction in our spiritual walk with you. And may the Lord Jesus, who died for us, get great honour to his name through this. Amen. This 
title is Say Yes to Godliness and you need to have the Bible open at Second Peter because the, the issues raised in Titus 2.11 and so on about saying no to ungodliness and worldly passion but rather living soberly and righteously and godly in this present age is repeated throughout your New Testament because salvation is not about getting you into heaven and it's not about keeping you out of hell. It's about undoing the great scarring on your soul that, that occurred when Adam fell. It's about making you godlike in your character and moral. You were made in the image of God. Adam was upright. He was the very image of God. All that God is infinitely. Adam was made finitely, as a, in a creaturely way. Everything about him was a finite edition of God. And Adam ruined it for us all and scarred us. He slashed our faces and put a great scar across our souls. But Christ has come to remedy that and make you godly. And uh, therefore, this salvation is a positive thing. It's not about you just not doing certain things. It's about you becoming something and doing things that are godlike in your moral life. When we come to 2 Peter, there's a special spin put on this, a particular way of a, a, approaching this. And it's especially important for us because we live in a kind of that'll do culture. Christians are content if they can say, I prayed a prayer all those years ago. There's some attitudes around amongst us that, well, you know, there's, there's the kind of spiritual Christians and there are the prayer meeting attending Christians and there are the uh, mission going Christians but uh, I'm not like that and uh, such people often can be content with the level of so called spirituality that they do think they, that they have and yet uh, the Peter as he writes to us he uses one word again and again he uses by the way He's, he's the person who uses, uh, of all the 32 times that the word godliness or pious or piously appear in the Bible, uh, uh, he, he, in just three pages, uses five of those 30. The other 1,384 pages in my Bible, anyway, it have all the rest. He's very intense about godliness. But he's very intense about another word. And it is the word diligence. Be diligent. Be careful. And the central idea of this which comes out in the, in the first chapter, look at verse 5 of chapter 2 Peter 1. It says, giving all diligence. And then later he, he therefore says in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent even more than all diligent, be even more diligent than that. And then uh, later on he mentions it again. And the central idea in this word is, is to hurry. It's to hurry. It's to take care. You've got something on your mind. You've got to get it. Herodias' daughter went out. She'd been offered, actually she'd been offered Herodias' place, half the kingdom. 
Say yes to me, I'll get rid of your mum. That's really what Herod was saying. And she went out and spoke to her mother. And the mother said, John the Baptist said, and it said, she came back in with haste, it says in my translation. But it's this word, diligently. She'd got one thing on her mind. She was going to hurry. She was coming in there. And she had to get this thing said. She wanted that head on the plate. As soon as Mary knew she was pregnant and that the child inside her was the Messiah, it said she hurried to get up to Elizabeth. She made her plan. She had to get there. She wanted to make that connection. And she went. The Corinthians were a really laid-back group of Christians. They could tolerate anything, even a man committing incest in their congregation, until Paul spoke to them. And then he said, you then became careful, thorough, you hurried to get it sorted out. And that's the idea here. Peter is saying, be diligent in regard to salvation. Be diligent in regard to what you are as a Christian. Hurry, take care, be thorough. Don't be a that'll do kind of person. It's vital that you take care, that you make sure that you are diligent. Four things in this chapter to be diligent about in order to say yes to godliness. And the first is you must be diligent about your salvation. And that's in verses 1 to 4. Peter is writing to those who've obtained the same precious faith. And that tells them, uh, that tells these people, you must make sure you have actually said yes to God, else you will never say yes to godliness. Have you said yes to Christ? Have you said yes to salvation? You can't say yes to anything else. This is a door through which you have to pass. You can't come over the wall part way through the Christian life. You've got to go in through the straight gate. You must make your journey up to Calvary's cross. You have to stand there until the tears come down your face and the burden is loosed off your back and it rolls away. It's loosed of its own accord as you consider what the Lord Jesus did at the cross. It's vital. You must say yes to God before you can say yes to godliness. And in fact, saying yes to God is exactly what godliness is. Isn't it? God-likeness is you agreeing with what God wants you to be and what you want to become. And he says, I'm writing to you that have this same precious faith. And therefore it's vital for you to ask whether your Christianity, what you say you are as a Christian, is found in the Bible. Because if you have the same faith as Peter, your faith, you will be able to take a line from what you are and trace it back biblically to Peter. You'll be able to say, what I say is salvation is what Peter says is salvation. But you'll not only be able to trace it back biblically, you'll be able to trace it back historically. You'll be able to say, yes, my faith, the faith I've got, I can trace it back. And there's a young fellow called Spurgeon, just walking out of a church, and he's been converted. 
And what's happened to him happened to me. And you'll trace it back further than him. You'll go to the Puritans and see some of them as you read of them in church history and you'll say, yes, I can see that what happens to me, has happened to me, happened to them. You'll go back to the uh, Reformation and you'll see Tyndale and before him you'll go back to Wycliffe and say, what happened to them is what happened to me. But if you're really brave, you'll go back to other names that perhaps are less familiar to you. At the end of the first century, we come to a great man of God called Polycarp and we know his story. And others of that, of that first and second century, and if you want to know what real Christianity is historically, you can go back and say, what happened to them has happened to me. And therefore, we need to have, there needs to be a biblical similarity between what's happened to me and what happened to Peter. A historical similarity. I can trace a lineage of people who came to Christ as I came to Christ. They have the same thing. But there's also, and this is the importance of this morning, there is an experimental similarity. What salvation meant to Peter or to Spurgeon or to Polycarp, it means the same to me. That salvation is working its way out in me as it worked its way out in them. When they came to Christ, what changed? What was it that salvation began in them, the God who begins a good work in you, began a good work in them. And there will be immense similarity. It isn't that, well, I can be a Christian and go off and do that, but Spurgeon said he could be a Christian. He couldn't do that, but he thought he had to live in this way. And that that was the best way. Or, you know, there aren't loads of Christian uh, pathways of morality and stuff. Standards. There's an experimental Christianity, a way of living that is distinctly Christian and you can see it in the lives of those who came to Christ in the scripture and you can see it in the lives that you will read about. When I was making notes in uh, Steve's, Stephen Case's uh, ministry, which found so helpful, Although it's always dangerous to have someone coming up with a similar title just before you, so I was scared at quite a few points. But uh, as, as he was uh, uh, speaking, I, I wrote this down. If my life had been recorded in the Bible, if my life story were recorded like David's or, uh, or Jeremiah's or Isaiah's, a lot of their life is written there, would it have a place in a hall of fame or a hall of shame? And I thought about that as he was speaking, whether, whether my life really has that, what I'm calling an experimental, an experience of life, similarity between me and them. Be diligent about your salvation. Have you come to Christ for this real thing, this true salvation, so you can say, I'm not just going along with what everybody around here calls salvation. What this book calls salvation is what I've got. I was very encouraged when I was first converted in Bedford through the Young Life work there and uh, I, I went to this Bible study and after I'd had, uh, been um, shaken by this Bible study and, and come to know Christ, I was recommended to read a book called Right With God by John Blanchard. 
And when I read this book by John Blanchard, I kept opening it and thinking, how does he know what's happened to me? Who told him about this? I kept reading page after page, I looked through it, and that was difficult. I found it difficult. But the, this was the, the thing I thought, he knows what's happened to me. How, how could that ever possibly be so? And it's now I realise because there are such similarities in our coming to Christ and our first steps in Christ. And it's because of what it says in verse 3 and 4. Because his divine power is mentioned and then divine promises. These two things stand together. The divine power works in your soul and gives you a new life. And it strengthens you that you can trust Christ and you have faith. Out of that working of divine power comes the rising of a faith in God. But the promises then are given that that faith might rest in what God has said. And we all have the same two things working for us. The divine power and these divinely given promises. But by them, you notice what it says, you might be partakers of the divine nature, that you might be godly, that you might be godlike in your conduct. That's why you've been given the power working in you to make you godly and promises to encourage that godliness. So, the first great thing then this morning is say yes to God if you would say yes to godliness. Begin at the cross. Go there. Don't have something you call salvation that the Bible doesn't call salvation. Don't have something that you call salvation and then when you read church history, you look at Christians that are admired and even you admire and yet there are marked and distinct differences between what you think is happening in you and what you will allow and what you permit and the way of life you lead and they led a different way of life. They had an emphasis, which is not your emphasis. Be careful. Let there be a biblical, a historical, an experimental similarity between you and all that is here in salvation. The second big thing that we uh, need to do here, then, is not just to be diligent about salvation, getting saved, getting started, but to be diligent about sanctification. That's from verses 5 to 11. For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Think about this statement. You are not saved by your sanctification, are you? Lots of people sort of think that as if God has given them a clean slate and now they've got to somehow do their best. You are not saved by your sanctification, but you are not saved without it. You got that? It's a very important thing. It's it's the same as saying you're not actually saved by your faith, but you're not saved without faith. It's all the same type of idea. You becoming holy will not save you, but salvation will make you become holy. 
And therefore we're told here to be diligent about sanctification. Steve did it actually rob me of one illustration, so I'll give it anyway. Uh, Lance Pibworth, when he was uh, with us, he used to always go on about going to auctions. I don't know if you know that. They scare me to death. There's not much that scares me to death, but, uh, but uh, auctions, going to auctions and knowing whether I blinked an eye, <laughs> nodded, twitched. You know, whether I was going to buy something I couldn't afford, I didn't know what to do. But Lance was in his element and he would go there and buy a lot of junk and bring it home <laughs> and value it immensely just because he got it. But, um, but uh, if you go to an auction, you, you might see a whole box of stuff and you look in it and you think, I only want that. I only want that. And you say to the auctioneer, can I just have that there? And he says, no, you can't. You, it's a job lot. You get that, you get, if you get everything, you get that. You get it all or you get none of it. And salvation is precisely that. You get everything in salvation or you get none of it. And sanctification is an indispensable element in your salvation. You becoming a new person, having a new heart with its new desires, with new vigour, with new direction, with new aspirations, with a new love, that is what regeneration, that is the, the bringing to your, of your soul to life, that's what it produces. New aspirations, new longings, new hopes, new direction, new values. God's Spirit creates that in you. It's a spark of life that then expresses itself with a great hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And the second thing Peter addresses here in saying yes to godliness is to say yes to sanctification. This is the will of God. Your sanctification and sanctification is often seen as a very positive thing, and so it should be. When Paul deals with sanctification, he does it over three chapters of the book of Romans. And in chapter 6, he says to us, how can I sin? He looks at salvation and he says, if, sorry, if this has happened to me, if Christ has died for me, if, uh, if Christ has brought me to himself and is at work in me, how can I possibly go on sinning? That's chapter 6. In chapter 7, he looks at himself and says, just a minute, knowing myself as I am, how can I stop? And at the end of chapter 7, he lets out a cry which says, who's going to deliver me then from the body of this death? And then the answer comes, I thank God. And then there's what we call an ellipsis, a little gap where you put in the meaning and it's carried forward with it, the power of the context. I thank God. He will, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what he, he says there. And then, when we come into chapter 8, he then gives us all the resources. So chapter 6 says, how can I sin? Chapter 7, how can I stop? But chapter 8 gives the remedy. How can I succeed? And he goes on to show that we have God's Spirit living in us to make us holy. And Peter takes this idea here and says, say yes to sanctification and be diligent about it. Be earnest about it. Be focused on it. Especially in this area. Don't say, that'll do. 
be diligent. And he says, add. And he has this lovely list of things. Add virtue, the idea of having moral excellence. My utmost in moral excellence for his highest. That concept. And then after that, knowledge, the wisdom of how to take God's word and apply it to my life. Then self-control or temperance, the inner, a command over inner passion that expresses itself in a control over outward action. And he goes on through this list to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness love. And he's saying, add, coming to Christ is the beginning. And you should now be interested in adding blessings into your life in these character qualities, these moral excellences. Now, we then have to ask, well, where do we start? You know, and when I looked at this, I thought, well, if, if I've got to sort out virtue before I move on to knowledge, well, I've been 30 uh, some odd years, I won't tell you, but anyway, over 30, nearly 40 years working on the first one. I don't think I'm going to get to the end of this list. But you see, these aren't meant to be dealt with consecutively. They're meant to be dealt with concurrently. It's not saying, okay, I'm going to plant carrots this year, and next year, potatoes. And after that, I'm going to go on to Brussels sprouts, and then on to cabbage, and I don't know even if that's a good... Uh, order to going, but you're not saying this year this and I'll get the fruit of it and next year that. It's saying I'm going to have some rows of carrots and some rows of potatoes and some rows of this and rows of this and I know when to plant them, I know how to cultivate them and they may well fruit and flourish in different ways and be produ- producing fruit at different times but I will grow them all in the garden. And in the garden of your soul, that's what Peter is telling us. Cultivate all of these qualities. Look at them, say yes to them, and have a part of your soul that's devoted to moral excellence, to knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And he says, because if these things are in you, and abound, you are not going to be a fruitless Christian. One day Lance said to me, I didn't get any potatoes out of my garden this year. Now, this is an aside, but I used to be a dustbin man and Lance used to say to me, if you ever get any old beds, Will you take all of the straw stuff that you get used to get in them, uh, natural fibres that are in them, bring them to me in big bags, I'll put them in my garden. He had, uh, and I brought him bag after bag. I mean, it was the most revolting activity to do for Lance. <laughs> but I used to collect these bags of stuff that he would dig into his garden and he had, if those who know, it was the most astonishingly beautiful, well-kept garden. When he said to me, David, I didn't get any potatoes, I thought, the end of the world must have happened because he could get anything to grow well. So I said to him, why not, Lance? He said, 
I never planted any. (laughs) If you're not becoming fruitful in these areas, it may be because you just aren't taking an interest in the garden of your soul. And you haven't planted any of these things. I went... Uh, Colette went away the other day um, for a few days to see our son in Scotland and she left me the most careful instructions about how the tomatoes were to be cared for. I'm sure she said all the words she told me she did say but I only heard the word water them. It was only when they were about to drop off the the side drooping that I even remembered that word and when she came back I said to her well I did water them I didn't say once I saw the leaves browning and dropping but I I did water them she said I told you what anyone who's married knows the moment (laughs) I told you you didn't listen You can't multitask. You're not a woman. (laughs) I wasn't diligent. I didn't listen. And having not been diligent in listening, I was doomed from that moment. But let me tell you, even if I'd listened well, plants are not high on my agenda of things I'm interested in when Colette's away. Are you interested in the flourishing of your soul in sanctification. It really matters, doesn't it? really does. Be diligent in regard to sanctification. Look at the things you want to be there. People have said quotes, I've heard quotes like this many a times. You are the man you want to be. You are the product of your choices. These are all truths, aren't they? And we all know it's so. You will be holy when you choose holiness. When it's your decision and you're careful in this area. But Peter goes on in verses 12 to 15 to give a third area which is about saying yes to godliness. Because he recognises that soon he won't be there, verses 12 to 15. For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things why is he being negligent because he says as long as I am in this tent knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle very soon Peter will not be there these people have got Peter as a reference point a mentor the apostle is there and soon he will not be there they have to be diligent about their salvation they have to be diligent about their sanctification but they have to be diligent that they can stand alone let me ask you a question how did Joseph say no? do you know men? how did he say no? I read that story he's a slave He's no youth group. He's no pastor around him. You know, young people are saying, well, I want to go to that church. Lots of young people there. As if that would be the saving of them. 
Joseph had nothing, no advantage, except he knew that God had a purpose and plan for his life that required him to be holy. And in a psalm it says, Until that time came, the word of the Lord tested him. Tested him. Put him through such trials as tested what kind of man he intended to be. How did he stand alone? I have no idea, but he did. By God's grace, he said yes to godliness when he was on his own. What about Daniel? We can go through the great heroes of our faith, can't we? And say they stood alone. And here is the apostle saying, I won't be here. What will you be when I've gone? What will you be? In my life, there are two very significant men at its beginning. And both of them turned out of the way. One to immorality and one to error. And these were the two great mentors of my early days. And I realised there came a point in my life where I had to, where I consciously made this decision. I have to know what I believe regardless of what anyone else, even my closest friends, believe. And I must know what, how I will behave even if no one else behaves like that. I can remember it as distinctly. It was when I was working together with Roger in Garforth. And uh, I can know it was as clear a moment in my life as if it were like a second conversion. I will be me, the best me that I can be, the most godly me that I can be, and I will stand as me in my own convictions, and I will be no man's clone. I must be that man and live in the light of a clear conscience before the Lord so that he alone is the one to whom I'm accountable. It was like another conversion. I'm sure you understand what I'm saying there. But young people, there, there needs to be that spirit in you. You need to be determined that if the Peters of your life are no longer there, you will stand alone. And they will be good men and women, your mentors, if they prepare you for it as Peter was here. That's the third big thing. If you're going to say yes to godliness, be diligent about salvation. Be diligent about sanctification. Be diligent about standing alone, no matter if, how alone you are. You know when you're alone, it just means there's you. That's really what it means, just you. And everybody else thinks you're an absolute nutter. They do. And you have to be ready to say yes. I will stand here even when Christians are jeering and saying that you're a legalist. That's the, the great insult of this day, by the way, is that we're all legalists. We've never had so much loose living among Christians, and yet those who stand upright are all called legalists for having any rules, so-called, or principles by which they want to just live a holy life with a clear conscience before the Lord every day. Be ready, be diligent, be careful, be hasty to stand alone. And then the last thing 
is from verses 16 to the end, where he tells them that they haven't followed cunningly devised fables. Be diligent about the scriptures. Don't be a that'll do person about your Bible. I preached uh, from a psalm in our own congregation um, on one occasion and I insisted that you should have your quiet time in the morning for which someone accused me of being legalistic. Be diligent. In the morning before you dare go out, you need the Lord's help. No matter how you need a pausing moment, even if it's only a moment, in which you gather your soul's resources together and think on Christ. And it may be that better there's another moment when you can go like Isaac and meditate in the cool of the day in the evening, although the cool of the day is normally all day. You do a lot of meditating in, in our country. This summer you'd have had a long meditation. But uh, he went out and he meditated. That may have, may have been his best time for his extended quiet time. But gather your resources, be diligent about the scriptures. And we're told why here. Because we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. In other words, we're reading facts, not fables. The Bible is inerrant. It contains no errors. And then he says the Bible is not of any private interpretation. That isn't... That means this, it hasn't arisen from some imagination or intuition or understanding of a man. And Peter gives us an example of that. We were on the mountain, we saw God's glory, but we know Peter got it all wrong when he interpreted it there and then. But when he wrote down about it here, he didn't get it wrong. The Bible is not only inerrant and contains no error, it's infallible And it conveys no error. Reading the Bible will never lead you astray. In the creation-evolution debate, I said, if you were left in a locked room with the Bible, would you become an evolutionist? It's one of the things that tells us it can't be right. You wouldn't get even the slightest thought of it if you were left only with your Bible It conveys no error. But it also says here, it's inspired. Inspired. It's inerrant, infallible, inspired in these words. Holy men of God were moved, carried along, borne up, above their own limited knowledge and misunderstandings. They were lifted above them as they wrote. Be diligent in your Bible if you want to be a godly person. You cannot say yes to godliness without saying yes to God's word. Every day. Taking it up and having what some people despise when they call it their quiet time. How glad I am. It was uh, Helen Rosevere who uh, said uh, uh, on one occasion where she, when she was converted she was She was reading that hymn, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And she said, she took that, read those words, and then she says, I meant every word. And after that, she said, but the best, the best 
gift she was given after that was a Bible. And the best advice was to read it every day. You can read her biography, it's there. A wonderful, godly woman she became. Two pieces of art. Best gift was the book. And the best advice, don't let a day go by without taking time to learn more about the Lord in this book. Friends, saying no to ungodliness is a right thing. You can't say yes to godliness without saying no to godliness. But say yes to godliness and if you do, you'll be saying yes to salvation. Yes to sanctification. Yes to standing alone. And you'll be saying yes to the scriptures every day. I wonder if you I wonder if you are honest enough to say if it's true I've been a that'll do Christian but no more. From this day forward I'm going to seek by God's grace to be careful thorough hasty diligent in being one who says yes to God And yes to godliness and yes to God's word.